Chapter Twenty Eight of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bruce Peary. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter Twenty Eight by Thomas W. Knox. The Chinese Quarter of New York behind the scenes in chinatown john and his curious ways a night visit to an opium joint about half a century ago a curious craft arrived one day at new york having sailed all the way from china it was the chinese junk ki ying and she had been a long time on the way having visited london en route the Ki Ying was a speculation on the part of some foreigners in Far Cathay. They had decided that there was money in building a junk and sending her to distant parts of the world as a show. She was fitted up as a Chinese museum and had stalls all around her decks where Chinese artisans were working at their various trades. She was a profitable enterprise, as crowds came daily to see her, and the money made from the exhibition was the foundation of a commercial house that still exists at Hong Kong, with branches in several ports of the Far East. But one unhappy day she took fire in the harbor of New York and was burned to the water's edge. As a show, she was no longer of any use. Neither could she serve as a place of residence for the men who formerly inhabited her. Some of them found their way back to China, but the majority remained in New York and formed the nucleus of the present Chinese colony in Mott Street. The Chinese residents of New York are chiefly engaged in the laundry business. There are about 700 laundries in the city, and as each one employs from two to half a dozen people, the number of Chinese residents is by no means small. The location of the laundries is determined by a committee of Chinese, which takes care that these establishments are not near enough to each other to make competition between them. They are intended to compete with laundries run by people of other nationalities, but not with those of their own. The center of the Chinese community is on Mott Street, and so dense is the Mongolian population there that this street and its immediate vicinity have received the appellation of Chinatown. Between Chatham and Pell Streets, Mott is entirely given up to the Chinese, or so nearly so that the exceptions are not worth mentioning. According to an old captain of the 6th Police Precinct, which includes Chinatown, whose views from a police point are interesting, there are many popular errors about John Chinaman and his ways. In the first place, said the captain when we had settled down to the subject of our conversation, John is more cleanly in his ways than is generally supposed, at least in this country, whatever he may be in his native land. It is true that the Chinese in New York herd very closely together, and live in quarters that would be repugnant to an American. It is no unusual thing to find half a dozen of them living in a room that would be insufficient for more than two laboring Americans, and they are not over-particular on the subject of ventilation. But they wash themselves oftener than do the Italians, and they shave their heads and braid their queues with a care that everybody must commend. 
they live much better than the italians do too the captain went on an italian comes here and earns one dollar and a quarter a day he saves the dollar to take or send home to italy and lives on the remaining twenty-five cents which he spends for stale beer macaroni and rice and the italians in mulberry street crowd together quite as closely as ever the chinese do and sometimes even more so on the other hand john chinaman lives well he eats pork chicken and vegetables and very often he has delicacies in the shape of eggs fifty years old that have been imported from china at considerable expense together with sharks fins dried sea slugs and the like the rich chinamen live luxuriously or at all events in a style that would astonish a good many americans who think mott street is the resort of only the vilest and poorest of the celestials john minds his own business continued the captain and gives us very little trouble we make fewer arrests among the chinese than among any other foreign nationality in proportion to their numbers they settle most of their disputes among themselves quarrels are referred to the president of their society who may be called the mayor of chinatown and he stands high among them his name is tom lee and he is a prosperous merchant who has made the most of his money since he came to new york perhaps john would be in no wise different from the rest of mankind if he took advantage of his neighbor in a trade when the opportunity offered itself as to stealing he might do his share of it but he is by no means the only man in the world who will take what isn't his own but i have observed that they are honest among themselves and so far as i know they rarely steal from each other for example a chinaman will live in a hall bedroom in a house where there are dozens of other chinese he will go to his work and be gone all day leaving his room unlocked so that a thief might come in and help himself if he wanted to of course a white man couldn't enter the building without being seen and observed but a chinaman could go there with very little chance of detection they seem to respect each other's property sometimes there may be quite a lot of silk and other garments which cost considerable money and also rings and bracelets such as they wear lying about their rooms but it is rare indeed that you hear of a robbery among them under similar circumstances a white man in a white men's lodging-house would expect his goods to be missing in short order if he left them exposed in this way perhaps it is because a white man would steal under such circumstances that john does not the captain added with a smile upon his face you see john does nearly everything just the reverse of ourselves and perhaps his morals are reversed too you know we write across the page and he writes down we join our letters together to make words and he keeps them separate or he makes a single character stand for a word the first page of our book is the last of his and the first of his is the last of ours we stand up to plane aboard and he sits down to do the same thing we eat with knives and forks and he eats with chopsticks we say our prayers or at any rate we ought to and he burns his we put on black when in mourning 
and he puts on white we cut our hair short and he wears his in a long pigtail we drink ice-water and he abhors it as he would abhor deadly poison and just out of a spirit of doing things the other way it may be that john refrains from stealing under the circumstances i have mentioned americans and europeans can hardly be called a race of gamblers said the captain after a moment's pause but you may set down the chinese as a gambling people john has a contrariness in his character that is something of a puzzle he is acquisitive and economical industrious and temperate from our point of view and at the same time he is a born gambler and a confirmed opium smoker nearly every chinaman in mott street and in the whole of new york for that matter is fond of fantan and other gambling games and nearly every chinaman smokes opium the whole race seems to be devoted to gambling and the most of the work of the police with them is to break up their gambling houses and their opium dens it's very difficult to break up their gambling places though for the reason that they will rarely betray their comrades and they never allow a white man to play at their games once in a great while we can induce a chinaman to turn evidence against his countrymen but such cases are very rare a peculiarity of john is the fact that he will not as a general thing admit that he knows anything about another man's business he may tell you about his own but never about that of his neighbor when you ask one about the other he shakes his head and doesn't know anything more than his name and not always that we get evidence against them sometimes through the converted chinese who come here to do missionary work and manage to get into the gambling rooms and by the way he added with emphasis i don't think much of these converted chinese taken as a class together they impose upon the people who employ them and send them here to convert their countrymen they are christians just because it pays for them to join the church and pretend to have renounced paganism there may be honest men among them but they are not in the majority some of these fellows while professing to be christians have josses of their own and frequently take a hand at fantan here sergeant said the captain as one of the precinct detectives passed the door i want you to show this gentleman through mott street and chinatown the sergeant came in and i was introduced to a man of medium height blond as to complexion and with blue eyes that seemed able to pierce an uncut millstone if such piercing were possible to the human organ of sight he knew every inch of chinatown and probably every one of its inhabitants as he was greeted familiarly wherever we went and led me a foot-wearying promenade in and out of many buildings and up and down numerous stairways in chinatown mott street is narrow and dirty but that is nothing unusual in new york in fact there are a good many streets in the metropolis much dirtier than this two or three chinese children were playing in the street but did not venture far from their doors the american or irish small boy is apt to make it uncomfortable for the juvenile mongolian whenever opportunity offers 
one of his favorite amusements is to gather up a handful of mud and throw it in the face of the unsuspecting celestial a dozen boys will act simultaneously in attacking half their number of young chinese and they will be aided and abetted by white men who stand on the street corners and laugh at the outrage as something very funny in consequence of this tendency the few children of the chinese residents do not often venture out of doors along the sidewalks there was a fair number of chinese but on the whole the scene was quiet the best day to see these people is on sunday when the laundries are closed and those who are engaged in them come to mott street to enjoy themselves then the street is crowded and sometimes it is not easy to make one's way through the dense throng the sergeant told me of a capture of chinese gamblers that he recently accomplished after considerable hard work he was convinced that the celestials were running a fantan game in some rear rooms overlooked by another building but how to get into that building and be able to identify the players was a conundrum by the aid of a man who was not known to have any connection with the police he hired a room whose windows looked directly upon the fantan players and managed to get in there without being identified then with a fellow detective and a pair of field glasses he spotted his men and when he was sure of their features he arranged to have the place pulled by night when the police arrived on the scene the alert chinese lookout on the street gave the signal and instantly the lights went out and the paraphernalia of fantan was concealed some of the players fled and those who remained were quietly smoking their pipes when the officers reached the gambling room but the sergeant had taken the measure of the gamblers and knew their faces thoroughly so that there was no escape they were tried convicted and sent to blackwell's island fantan is the special gambling game on which the police wage relentless warfare it is played nightly by private parties and the utmost pains are taken to elude the vigilance of the minions of the law a dozen or more players group themselves around a table in the center of which is a pewter slab this slab is crossed with diagonal lines dividing it into sections numbered respectively one two three and four the players are at liberty to bet on any number they choose or on more than one number the dealer or keeper of the game sits at one side of the table and a little in front of him is a pile of a quart or more of chinese cash small copper or brass coins with square holes in the center while the bets are being made he takes a handful of cash from the pile places it on a clear space on the table and covers it with an inverted bowl to prevent fraud he has short sleeves that just project from his shoulders and no farther and he is provided with a rod of brass or ivory as large around as a lead pencil and twice its length and sharpened at one end to a fine point when the stakes are all made he raises the bowl from the small pile of coins and with the pointed end of his wand picks out the cash in fours the remainder after all possible fours but one are removed is the winning number 
before the pile is half removed the skilled players can tell almost to a certainty what will be the winning number and it is interesting to watch their faces and observe the expressions of hope greedy expectation or sullen disappointment a regularly constructed fantan room has a hole in the low ceiling above the table this hole is the size of the table or a little larger and is surrounded by a railing another and more aristocratic group of players looks eagerly over the railing and their bets are lowered and winnings raised by means of a small basket attached to a cord we first visited wo Qi, one of the richest merchants of chinatown he is perhaps worth a hundred thousand dollars and is a man of reputation and dignity we found him seated with one of his employees at the side of a tub where the twain were engaged in shelling beans whether they were intended for his consumption or for customers i did not ask but as beans are not supposed to be fattening and woke he is decidedly a fat man it is probable that they were for commercial rather than personal use our conversation was brief though he spoke very good english Woki adhering to his tub with the assiduity of a Socrates, and not once suspending the work of bean-shelling. He is a general merchant in Chinese goods, and his shop contains everything from a firecracker to a dried duck or an embroidered jacket. The Chinese in New York follow the custom of their native land in settling accounts at the end of the year paying when they can and being forgiven all debts that they are unable to pay the eleventh of february is the chinese new year and on that day there is a grand festivity in which everybody feasts and offers prayers in the joss house or temple it is a sort of fourth of july new year's day and thanksgiving day combined and it is an important day indeed for everybody concerned delinquents who cannot pay their debts are crossed off the books and it is proper to add that they are never trusted again there is not now a single opium joint in mott street or its vicinity but every chinaman almost without exception smokes the drug and has his own private layout for that purpose this cannot be called a joint which is a place kept by a man who admits patrons to smoke at a fixed price per head the joints that formerly existed in mott street were patronized largely by chinese but not wholly so white men and women particularly the latter used to go there and the places were the scenes of all sorts of iniquity such resorts still exist uptown where opium and a pipe can be obtained by the initiated there are only two or three chinese women living in mott street and probably not more than six in the whole city they are the wives of prominent chinese wo Qi has his wife and family living here and the other chinese women are of equally reputable standing the class of chinese women that have given the police of san francisco a great deal of trouble is unknown in new york their places being taken by white women these last are not easy to discover in evil ways for the reason that they have no relations with white men 
but associate exclusively with the Mongolians. When arrested and brought into the police courts, they claim to be the wives of Chinese, and either produce marriage certificates or bring their alleged husbands to swear to the matrimonial relation. John is fond of pretty faces, although he's not usually remarkable for his own beauty, and not a few white girls find a ready market for their charms in Mott and Pell streets. Chinamen were coming and going along the sidewalk and in and out of the houses, alleys, and cellars as I accompanied the detective, for whom many of them had a friendly nod and a word of welcome. I wondered whether the nods and words were inspired by fear or esteem, but did not propound this question to the sergeant. John is shrewd enough to know that it is to his advantage to keep on the right side of detectives, who can be very troublesome when they choose to be, in case the ways of John should happen to be such as would not well bear the light. A Chinese drug store was next visited, where the medicaments were such as are generally unknown to the American pharmacopoeia. A deer's horn taken in the velvet, or rather a section weighing perhaps two pounds, hung above the counter. I asked the price and was told ten dollar. Deer's horn in this condition, when the new horn is just forming, is a sovereign remedy for many ills and is prescribed with the greatest solemnity. It is grated fine and given as a dry powder, or it may be mixed with other medicines in order that the combined effect may be to tangle the disease, if not to cure it. At the sergeant's suggestion, the almond-eyed druggist showed me a handful of dried locusts, which he took from a drawer. These locusts are caught in China, where they are carefully dried. When wanted for use, they are stewed until reduced to a thin soup, and in this form are taken by the man who wants to get well. The Chinese are great believers in charms and incantations, and the soothsayer's art is closely allied to that of the doctor. In fact, the two are often exercised by one and the same individual. From the drugstore, we went to see the big joss, or idol in the temple, which is on the third floor of a house on Mott Street, the second floor being occupied as a restaurant. The restaurant occupies the whole of the front part of the floor, the rear being used as a kitchen. There were twelve or fifteen tables in the room, they were round and about four feet in diameter, and at one of them was a group of five men busily engaged in satisfying their appetites in true Chinese style. One was holding a bowl of rice close against his chin, and by means of a pair of chopsticks the food was forced rapidly into his mouth. Another was lifting pieces of stewed pork from a steaming bowl, and two of the diners were regaling themselves on what appeared to be boiled cabbage cut very fine, though it may have been something else. Most of the men at table were squatting with their heels on low stools, and the others were sitting in Occidental fashion. The detective fell into conversation with a man in American dress who was alone at one of the tables. He was one of the three interpreters who serve their countrymen in the courts and elsewhere where interpretation is necessary. 
the room was hung with strips of red paper on which the bill of fare was printed in chinese characters together with the prices as in other restaurants the world over there were certain standard dishes such as rice stewed pork beans and the like and then there were dishes which are only served on stated occasions the general appearance of the place was not attractive the floor being covered with sawdust and the patrons anything but neat in their dress in addition to the bills of fare there were blessings and invitations on the strips of paper there were also some banners which had been presented to the proprietor by his friends and were evidently regarded by him with affection and esteem fong a pigtailed attendant then led the way to the kitchen where three or four cooks were hard at work and every few moments an order was shouted from the restaurant just as it is shouted in a downtown cafe one of the cooks was preparing a toothsome dish it consisted of pork onions bamboo shoots and celery and a single portion cost fifteen cents fan is rice and the price was five cents for a bowlful chai is tea and there were several varieties the poorest kind was served free like water in an american restaurant but if you wanted the fine varieties you had to pay for them and the price varied according to the quality another cook was preparing some pig's feet for the stew kettle and still another was washing and cutting up some ducks and chickens and very particular he was about his work there was no cooking range such as one finds in the kitchen of an american restaurant the kettles were set in brickwork and the frying pans stood over a sort of furnace which though primitive in construction was doubtless capable of frying to perfection the principal meats of the chinese are pork chicken and duck they eat very little beef and probably for every pound of it consumed in this restaurant there are twenty pounds of pork and as many of chicken used it is amazing what the chinaman will do with pork it is safe to say that after rice it is the chief staple of chinese diet here were whole carcasses laid out upon a table being painted with various dressings and cut into assorted sizes and shapes different portions were chosen and laid aside for different dishes and altogether when a chinaman has done with a pig there is nothing of the dead but bones the pigeon and the goose play a prominent part in the chinese bill of fare and the squawking of live birds in the kitchen is a frequent sound the way that a chinaman cuts a fowl is strangely unlike the european method the american or the european unjoints the bird and strips the skeleton of its meat not so john chinaman he slices a duck or chicken straight across bones and all it must be done with an exceedingly sharp knife for the bones are as cleanly cut as the flesh in the chinese cookery everything is prepared with a view to the use of chopsticks and all the viands are in bits which can be taken up easily with those two dainty straw-like instruments etiquette must be observed in chinese restaurants for example when one drinks tea he must pour a little into the cup rinse it around and empty it upon the floor 
whether this libation is a precaution in behalf of cleanliness or whether some god must be propitiated i know not and it is needless to ask questions for upon all points pertaining to his own customs john chinaman is strictly non-committal the first thing that the chinese waiter does is to set the table this does not imply the presence of tablecloth or napkins for those luxuries are conspicuous by their absence first is brought a tin teapot which holds a pint and flaring cups very small at the bottom to an american a fork is generally given but chinamen are provided with chopsticks the tea having been deposited on the table the diner gives his order for dinner this is a difficult task for an american sometimes two or three americans will drop in out of curiosity but they rarely stay long the best way to dine here is to make up a party and order the dinner beforehand then if you are willing to pay enough you can have the big room to yourselves and the floor will be swept and everything made presentable you can make a dinner that will cost three or four dollars a head by ordering expensive dishes dinner parties in the big room about twenty-five feet by fifty are not at all infrequent and sometimes ladies are taken there for the sake of the novelty a gentleman of my acquaintance once gave a dinner to a party of friends at this very restaurant the menu was in chinese and the dinner was ordered three days in advance an interpreter translated the menu of which the following is a translation first set shark's fins boned chicken stuffed with bird's nests boned duck stuffed with lily seed roast duck stuffed with chinese herbs fish bladder rock lichen with noodles pear wine tea and preserves second set yellowfish head gristle sea worms roast pigeon chinese water potatoes and fried chicken chicken stewed with mushrooms chicken mussels piquet with perfumed ham rice wine fruits and almonds third set fruits including oranges apples dried lychee nuts etc sweet pickles steamed cake lily seed soup bird's nest soup boiled rice and salted eggs in addition to these things there were various sweets on the table each guest had at his side a saucer of a condiment called soy and resembling worcester sauce bits of meat are dipped into the soy after being raised from the plate by the chopsticks and before going to the diner's mouth ascending to the joss house on the floor above we were welcomed by the proprietor whose english was as thin as his countenance which was so withered that nearly all the facial muscles were distinctly defined he smiled grimly upon the detective and myself and stood idly by while my guide showed the attractions of the place the centre of attraction and of the room is an idol that would be small in a temple in china but is a huge one for the quarters in which he finds himself in front of the idol is an elaborately carved and gilded screen which was brought from china quite recently it is all carved by hand and is as gaudy as it is mysterious to the occidental spectator 
it was detained for some time in the custom-house and the duties amounted to about four hundred dollars the proprietor was evidently proud of it and his eyes glistened as i praised it in all the pigeon english superlatives at my command the walls of the room are profusely ornamented with banners some of them very elaborately embroidered they are used on grand occasions such as funerals and new year festivities and in a rack near them were some standards that had a close resemblance to the torches which are borne by political patriots in night processions just before a presidential election in front of the idol is an altar on which the devout worshippers place their offerings of food for the deity that presides over the place exactly what becomes of this food i was unable to ascertain but i noted the circumstance that the temple is just above the restaurant possibly the keepers of the two places find the arrangement excellent for returning articles that the god cannot devour so that they may be sold again and perhaps several times over the devotees who patronize the temple go to considerable expense and some of the offerings are the choicest delicacies known to the chinese menu many of them are ordered from the restaurant and therefore it is convenient to be close to the source of food supply the custodian of the temple placidly smoked his pipe and the detective and i continued to smoke our cigars while in the joss house this was not intended as irreverence but is the customary way to do a small room at the rear of the temple contained an opium layout for two persons at one side of this little snuggery there was a raised platform about eighteen inches above the floor and five feet square it was covered with chinese matting and at each end was a curtain which partially shielded it from the gaze of persons outside the door in the centre of the platform was a tray which contained the smoker's layout and each piece was placed with the utmost precision there were two pipes and it was evident that two persons could find room here for a friendly smoke the little lamp on the tray is called the fairy it was shielded with glass to prevent its being easily extinguished and was supplied with peanut oil and its flame was used for cooking and burning the opium near the lamp was a little box of bone called the hop toy that held the opium a needle four or five inches long and flattened at one end was the yen hawk for holding the opium in the flame and a little box of tin held the yen shi or bits of refuse opium the pipe was a piece of bamboo about sixteen inches long and with a saucer-shaped bowl inserted about one-third of the distance from the end the value of a pipe increases with its age and saturation this one was black with long use and probably it could not be bought for less than thirty dollars perhaps it would bring as high as fifty and i have seen one for which one hundred dollars was refused it often happens that two smokers make use of one pipe which is passed alternately from hand to hand this is particularly the case in opium joints where a single pipe will serve for a party of two three or four 
there is economy in this as there is a fixed charge for a layout which includes the tray and contents together with a full charge of opium in the hop toy i recall a visit i once made by night to an opium joint when they flourished in this locality it was in a cellar or basement and the outer door was carefully guarded by a keen-eyed chinaman who refused admission to strangers unless they were properly escorted the doorkeeper surveyed us through a peephole in the door and when he was satisfied with the inspection he unlocked and unbolted the entrance and let down a chain whose links were as large as my little finger a dozen men would have been powerless to break it we proceeded along the narrow hallway which was lighted by a lantern hung from the ceiling then stopped at another door in which a little wicket opened and a yellow face appeared scrutinizing us inquiringly how many he asked two my friend replied and another bolt was withdrawn and we entered our nostrils were greeted with the pungent aromatic odor of burning opium the drug has an odor that is very penetrating and when once it is known it can be readily recognized this odor coming through doorways and permeating through a building in spite of every precaution has frequently led to the detection of opium joints and caused their suppression by the police on one side of the room was a little alcove like a ticket office it was occupied by the proprietor and just as we entered the place he was weighing out a charge of opium with some tiny scales like the smallest of those used by druggists several trays were piled at one side of the counter and there were a dozen or more fairy lamps on a shelf together with the other implements that make up a layout farther along was a curtain which hung over the entrance of the smoking-room we waited till the proprietor had made the tray ready for a customer and then followed him into the inner room the pungent odor increased as we passed the thick curtain which was drawn aside for us and we found ourselves in a room about thirty feet long by twelve in width it was dimly lighted and there were several strata of smoke that did not exactly resemble any smoke ordinarily seen in rooms all around the sides and ends of the room were platforms or bunks about two feet high and covered with chinese matting a few have mattresses instead of matting out of deference to american tastes the chinese smoker considers a board covered with matting quite soft enough for a bed and he regards hair feathers and french springs as fit for anything else in the world but to sleep on on the first of these platforms were two chinese smoking opium the boss handed one of them the tray he had just brought in the smoker was lying on the matting with his head resting on a bit of wood just large enough to support it as the tray was brought he rose up on his side and with the yen hawk took a mass of opium out of the hop toy he twisted the pasty mass until it assumed the shape of a pill on the end of the needle holding this in one hand he took the pipe in the other and placed his lips against the end next he brought the bowl directly over the flame of the lamp and then held the pill so that it was burned in the flame at the same time he drew several long inhalations with all the force of his lungs 
and expelled the smoke through his nostrils. Three or four whiffs, or maybe half a dozen, exhausted the pill of opium and finished the performance. The man had taken one pipe of opium. He placed the pipe by the side of the tray and fell back upon his headrest in a condition of drowsiness. His comrade picked up the pipe, formed a pill of opium from the mass in the box, and smoked it in the way we had just seen. Evidently the men were adepts at the business, as they were skillful in the manipulation of the pill, which is quite an awkward manner for the beginner. Having witnessed the operation of hitting the pipe, I moved on past the line of bunks that were filled with occupants. A few hid their faces, but the majority were so far under the influence of the drug as to be indifferent to surrounding circumstances. Nearly all the bunks were occupied, some having but a single smoker, and others two, three, or four occupants. Less than half the number of smokers were Chinese, the others being Americans. Few white men can run an opium joint successfully. A Chinaman is meek, pretends not to understand when anything insulting is said to him, and so long as he gets paid for the opium does not care what the patrons do. On the contrary, a white man will not stand insult, and wants to boss the place to suit himself. Nearly all the white women who frequent Chinatown are addicted to opium smoking, and many of them are so confirmed in the habit that they would find great difficulty in shaking it off. I've got the yen-yen opium habit the worst way, said one woman, and must have my pipe every night. I want two or three pipes before I can get to sleep, and sometimes I want half a dozen. How long have you been hitting the pipe? I asked. How long? Let me see, it's about four years. When I tried the first time I thought it would strangle me, but I soon found that it was pleasanter than cigarette smoke, and didn't make me cough but I smoked so much the first night that it made me deathly sick, and I felt awful the next morning. I smoked a night or two after that, and got along much better, and that's the way I started. Now I must have a smoke every night, or I can't live. I can cook a pill just as well as a chink, Chinaman, she continued. Just see me do it. With that she dipped the point of the needle into the sticky mass of opium in the little box of bone, and, after twirling it dexterously a few times, brought it out with a lump the size of a pea at the end. Then she held the pea in the flame of the fairy lamp till it was cooked, its color changing from black to the tint of old gold. Then she rolled it on the smooth surface of the pipe bowl to expel the poisonous juices, and when it was in proper condition she placed it in the bowl of the pipe, held it in the flame of the lamp, and with her lips against the ivory mouthpiece inhaled the smoke slowly, just as we had seen the Chinese do in the first bunk where we stopped. Near the farther end of the room was a bunk occupied by four white women, three of them being apparently adepts in the vice, and the fourth a novice. Four persons crowd a bunk very closely. Two recline their heads upon the pillows or headrests, and the other two make use of their companions for the same purpose. A party may consist of either men or women, or it may be made up of both sexes, 
opium smokers do not stand on ceremony with each other and strangers will recline on the same bunk and draw intoxication from the same pipe without the least hesitation the old adage says misery loves company this is certainly the case with debauchery and especially of debauchery through opium the occupants of the joint were in various stages of the opium intoxication some had taken their second third fourth or other pipes and were in a state of partial or complete insensibility the victims would often lie there for hours and sleep away as much as they could of the effects of the drug and rise in the morning with a feeling of hunger and thirst but a hunger that could not be allayed by food their nerves would be more or less shaken according to the length of time they had been addicted to the opium habit and they would long for the arrival of the night when they could again smoke and fall into a state of forgetfulness the opium used for smoking called by smokers dope is an aqueous extract of the ordinary commercial gum the chinese have a secret mode of preparing this extract making it more palatable to the taste and easier to get ready for smoking it is imported from china usually in oblong brass boxes about five inches long and two and a half wide the can is only half filled as in warm weather it puffs up and would overflow if allowance was not made for this swelling it is about the consistency of tar melted in the sun and nearly the same color the mode of measuring it when selling is by a chinese weight called fun there are about eighty-three fun in an ounce and a can contains four hundred and fifteen fun or about five ounces the best quality of this sells for eight dollars and twenty-five cents a can and inferior grades run as low as six dollars in smaller quantities eight to ten fun are sold for twenty-five cents whenever a joint is discovered and raided in the upper part of the city but few if any chinese are found in them the uptown joints are patronized almost exclusively by white people and i believe that the vice cannot be wholly stamped out of existence when once acquired the habit is not easily shaken off as it clings to its victims with great tenacity one uptown joint which was raided only a few months ago was located in a respectable apartment house and suspicion was drawn to it by the large number of well-dressed and well-behaved people of both sexes who went there and also by the peculiar odor that came from the door and permeated the halls of the building ten men and five women were captured and passed the rest of the night in the jefferson market police station all gave fictitious names and some of the women cried and begged to be let off as this so they alleged was the first time they had ever been in the place the smoking implements that were captured in the raid were of the highest class of workmanship and are an important addition to the museum at police headquarters one of the prisoners was a doctor who lived at a first-class hotel and had a goodly list of fashionable patients he claimed to have gone there for scientific observation and not for the purpose of smoking the pernicious drug 
but he followed the example of the others in giving a fictitious name when arrested the raid upon this opium joint and the revelations that followed are most unpleasantly suggestive of the growth of a vice which until within a few years was almost exclusively confined to chinatown it is not necessary to refer to official records for proof that the opium habit is spreading steadily and comparatively speaking fast the statements of physicians and druggists and even common observation supply convincing evidence of the fact it is not probable that new york now contains many large and luxuriously appointed resorts for opium smokers but if private houses could be turned inside out they would almost certainly reveal a startling number of individual victims who are accustomed to practice the vice in solitude there is every reason to suppose that without reference to the chinese quarter there are not a few establishments cautiously conducted amid decent surroundings which are regularly supported by coteries of habitual patrons and more or less accessible to occasional visitors the increasing sale of the drug the admissions of the medical profession and the experience of the hospitals unmistakably point to this conclusion for reasons which are obscure though the fact is notorious indulgence in the use of opium destroys the chinaman far less surely quickly and completely than the caucasian to americans in particular it means swift and certain degradation property has greatly advanced in mott street and rents have been more than doubled since the chinese located themselves there some of the buildings have been reconstructed by them and wherever they have taken property in hand for the purpose of improvement they have spent money liberally with the exception of the white women already mentioned they do not allow any people not of their own race to live among them and will doubtless continue their exclusiveness as long as they remain here End of chapter twenty eight